everybody, Eric here. This is just a very quick thank you to everyone who makes our community of listeners so amazing. I'm happy to announce that we are once again a top 10 nominee for the Tales of the Cocktail Foundation Spirited Awards in the category of Best Broadcast Podcast or Online Video Series. I truly appreciate the recognition from this important trade organization, but honestly, what makes me even happier is that it's going to help me continue to put out great content for all of you. So wherever you are, know that I'm raising a virtual glass to you for sharing in our mission to publish great educational spirits and cocktail content. I couldn't do it without you. And now, on to the show. Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 265 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for tuning in to another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm joined by author and ethnobotanist Gary Nibhan to explore some of the most pressing and important issues facing agave spirits enthusiasts and mezcaleros alike. But before we do, let's take a quick pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Division Bell. To make it, you'll need one ounce of mezcal, Delmagay Vita was the one used in the original formulation, three quarters of an ounce of Aperol, one quarter ounce of maraschino liqueur, and three quarters of an ounce of lime juice. Combine these ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, give them a good hard shake, then strain into a stemmed cocktail glass, garnish with a grapefruit twist, and enjoy. Developed by New York bartender Phil Ward at his bar Myowell in 2009, the Division Bell is a last word riff that sets this time-honored equal parts recipe wobbling on its axis. Sure, you've got all the necessary actors, one ounce of booze, some maraschino liqueur, some lime juice, and even a botanical liqueur in the form of Aperol. But this cocktail comes with a thesis statement. You can't always sub in different spirits and modifiers in an equal parts format and end up with a drink that's equally delicious as the original. Sometimes it takes some tweaking. By toning down the most cloying ingredient, the maraschino liqueur, and tempering the acidity to balance out the combined sugar of the liqueurs, the Division Bell reveals itself as a balanced sipper that seems to bill itself as the margarita's edgy, heavily tattooed cousin. And that's something I think we can all get behind. So now that you've got a new Mezcal drink to try out, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this botanically diverse conversation with ethnobotanist and author Gary Nibhan, some of the topics we discuss include the winding, intersectional, and truly inspiring story of Gary's personal journey, from his family ties to bootlegging during Prohibition, to his days spent foraging and learning about plants in the Indiana Dunes, to his documentary work showcasing the pollinator relationship between bats and agave. 
How he teamed up with his co-author, David Pinera, a famed distributor and curator of agave spirits, to assemble his latest book detailing the ethnobotanical importance of plant-people relationships and the nuances of the mezcal and tequila industries. Some notes on the sacred nature of agaves and how his background as an interfaith member of the Franciscan order has informed his mission to protect what is sacred. Why mezcal can truly be described as biodiversity in a bottle, plus some advice for navigating the almost dizzying array of distillates to choose from in today's market. And of course, we speculate on what the future might hold for our beloved agave spirits, including why the tequila industry might learn a thing or two from the parable of the prodigal son. Along the way, we cover the relationship between agave spirits and deforestation, explain why cactus and agave are truly the bison of the plant world, sing lavish praises for the elusive black sphinx date, and much, much more. You can pick up your copy of Agave Spirits, The Past, Present, and Future of Mezcals, wherever books are sold, and I'd encourage you also to keep an ear out for some of the other important and educational texts that Gary mentions during the lightning round. With that, please enjoy this fascinating deep dive on the world of agaves with ethnobotanist, author, and all-around fascinating guy, Gary Napan. Gary, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be with you, Eric, and great to be with your listeners. So before we jump into all things agave with your exciting new book that's about to drop here, could you please just give us a brief introduction? Just tell us who you are and what you do. Well, thank you. I'm an Arab American uh, grandson of immigrants who came into the United States through Mexico and through Brooklyn. And they happened to be bootleggers during prohibition, just like a, a lot of good rural people. And uh, they were makers of Adak, the uh, anise-flavored uh, distillate in Lebanon, and continued to do that even when I was growing up in the uh, 50s and 60s. And I suppose I'm best known as an ethnobotanist and a literary naturalist that focuses on plant-people relationships in rural cultures all around the world, uh, primarily in arid regions, but I've also worked in the uh, tropics and even in the Midwest where I grew up by the Indiana Dunes in Lake Michigan. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, I was browsing your website. Obviously, I wanted to get a sense of your bio and, you know, you have a, a pretty interesting breadth of experience that you bring to bear on your work. And so before we get into the book itself, um, your co-author, some of the content that we can expect to enjoy in this book, I'm wondering if you might walk us a little bit more gradually through some of the highlights of your career. And, and specifically, I have a few that stuck out to me. Uh, obviously, there's the ecology and ethnobotany angle, but you also seem to have an, a passion for heirloom seeds, which is uh, something that I've recently started delving into. And and you also seem to be a, a member of the, the Franciscan order, which is just an, another thing that stuck out to me. So how do all of these threads kind of weave together to form you know, the fiber of who you are and what you do? Well, I 
was interested in gardening and in wild plant collecting. Even when I was young, I used to go out with my Lebanese immigrant grandfather and collect uh, grape leaves uh, in the Indiana dunes so that the people in his uh, uh, church women's auxiliary could make uh, grape leaves for uh, benefits to raise money for scholarships and travel for youth and all of that. So I, I grew up a grandson of a fruit peddler and uh, garden maintenance uh, helper to uh, elderly people in the Indiana dunes. And then when I moved to the desert Southwest, I was just amazed by all the indigenous cultures that knew so much about deserts. And so I began to be mentored or apprenticed with both um, elderly Native American people in the United States Southwest and in Mexico, and with elderly botanists, uh, some of whom were deeply engaged with agaves or sensory plants like my mentor, Howard Scott Gentry. So to me, it's sort of a seamless uh, career of wanting to grow foods, not just intellectually understand them, and to savor their flavors and save them so that other people can enjoy them. And the Franciscan brother part of me is simply another way of saying that I feel a, a sacred responsibility to care for creation and all that's sacred on our planet. So I, I don't go out and proselytize. The Franciscan phrase is uh, go out and preach the good news, but only when necessary use words. And I suppose I've use my fill of words in my life, but it's not really to uh, convert people to any religion. It's to convert them or encourage them uh, to uh, care for this gorgeous and flavorful world that we live in. Correct me if I'm wrong. The Franciscan order is is more of a vocational order, right? I, I, I seem to remember from my, my time uh, growing up Catholic that it's time, talent, and treasure were the three terms that often got thrown around in, in the conversation, you know, vis-a-vis -vis Franciscan, um, I guess, uh, the, the way that they interacted and interfaced with other folks. Well, it's a it's a vocation that can include uh, married or unmarried people, celibate and non-celibate. And I'm actually an interfaith Franciscan in the ecumenical Franciscan order. So a lot of my work has been helping heal cross-cultural conflicts between Christians, Muslims, and Jews in the Middle East, where my family still lives, and between Native Americans, Mexican-American, and Anglo-American cultures in the Southwest. And so, again, to me, uh, I, I don't care as much about the labels as the, the doing, which I think is the verb that goes with that noun vocation. Hmm. I like it. You're speaking my language. So normally on this podcast, we have distillers, we have bartenders, uh, we have people much like I'm assuming the individual, many of the individuals that you interviewed and, and uh, spent time with in, in creating this book. And I, I'm particularly excited to talk to you because of a lot of what you just described. You seem to be very interdisciplinary 
with the way that you interface with the world as well as the types of perspectives that you bring into this. So what I'm excited to give our listeners is this deep dive into agave put through the filter of you, Gary, and probably portrayed in a light that is a little bit different from what they're used to hearing. And so I guess as we turn our attention to that book, uh, my first question is, um, how did you get in touch with uh, your co-author, David Sudo Pinera, and uh, like, what was the genesis of the book, and, and how did those, uh, I guess, first early phases of the creation of this text look like? Well, first of all, let me say that uh, David Soro, my co-author, and I are great admirers of bartenders, cantineros, and mixologists, and uh, feel uh, so dedicated to the great distillers that we know in promoting their work that the other people that have been on your uh, podcast are heroes of mine in the sense that they do the work that really matters. They're touching out and communicating with customers who need to know the backstories of what's on the back bar and the distillers who uh, provide us the essential spirits that, uh, that uh, drive us. So David and I had been reading each other's words and I'd been seeing his photographs for, for decades, really. He's often uh, the Mexican-American asked to be interviewed about tequila and mezcal. He grew up in Jalisco, um, uh, was a successful uh, owner and pioneer in Mexican restaurants in the Northeast, and then became a distributor and a co-curator uh, of spirits in his home state of Jalisco, and often took bartenders and uh, spirits distributors on field trips with him almost every winter for the last 10 years, he's taken 25 to 35 uh, mixologists and, and bartenders and and uh, spirits journalists along with him to four or five states in Mexico so they could see on ground all the incredible innovation going on. I was captivated by his work promoting agaves and bats as a kind of mutualism that we needed to protect and conserve because I had worked on pollinator conservation and had been out on both sides of the border with bat biologists, helping them figure out what agaves uh, their bats were visiting and even banding bats with radio collars that sometimes demonstrated that they went more than 120 kilometers a night uh, through the desert, uh, pollinating plants like the giant cacti and the sensory plants. So we had this mutual respect and many mutual friends, and we started to see each other at the great agave festivals that now occur every year in Marfa, Texas and Tucson. And at one point, David said, why don't you do another book? You did one with Ana Valenzuela, our, our mutual friend years ago, on tequila alone, but we need something broader and deeper. Um, would you be ready for that? And my reply was at first, no. And then a moment later, Yes, if you'll do it with me. <laughs> so I, I've never felt so comfortable and uh, respectful for, to someone's knowledge of a world from uh, the uh, still to the bar stool as David is. It gave me insights that I didn't have coming from a botany and agroecology 
uh, background, knowing the farmers and the harvesters, but not so much uh, the people in the beverage supply chain after that. Hmm. Well, it sounds like he's a great resource. And I love the detail about the bat agave mutualism. That's an entry in, uh, this is a reference to a past conversation. I want to, I want to pepper these in so that our listeners know what other agave related content they should be looking for on the show. So we had a great conversation with, uh, Eric Zandona, uh, who wrote the tequila dictionary and the bat uh, aspect was was something in his book that really surprised and intrigued me. Um, we've also had some interesting conversations here with Lou Bank and Chava Pettibon from the Agave Road Trip podcast. Uh, Lou Bank from Sacred Agave, which uh, does some really good philanthropic work. And uh, we also have a, a two-part deep dive that I did on the history of the margarita cocktail. So um, for those of you listening who enjoy this interview, definitely check those out. But um, once you met and kind of got to know David, where was the idea for this book generated? And I guess, what was the process of putting it together? That's a great question, Eric, and one that um, has many layers. Uh, we felt really comfortable traveling together. Uh, between us, we worked in eight states. I'd, uh, done agave work since the late 1970s and in fact helped with one of the first uh, TV science documentaries on the bad agave relationship in the late 1970s, early 80s. I think it came out in 81. But but the point was that, that uh, in traveling in the field together of visiting the Binatas and Palenques uh, where uh, uh, mezcal and tequila and other agave spirits were being uh, prepared, um, we each had different insights that were complementary to uh, the other person's. And uh, some things that David just took for granted that everyone knew, or that I took for granted that uh, I knew, we found that the other one was still trying to figure out the context of those issues. So it, the book really did evolve under dialogue. I've written 30 books, so I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't surprise many of my readers or your listeners by saying that I wrote the rough draft of most of the chapters and David wrote other parts. And then I sort of stitched it all together because I'm used to doing that. But David had uh, sources of competence, seasoned uh, members of uh, the industry that he had been working with for years that had just allowed us to tap into bodies of information, oral histories and other things that just no other writer about tequila or mezcal was, could do that easily in a narrative. And so I'm really grateful that the book is really built out of not just our friendship, but our friendships with dozens of other people in the uh, spirits industry. Mm. So how is the book structured then? If you, if you could just give us a high level overview, because I, we have uh, a very 
kind of uh, dedicated handful of listeners who will often kind of dip into my inbox and uh, talk agave. I'm thinking uh, Nelson. I'm thinking um, a few other folks who just regular listeners who are always just like fervently passionate about agave. So I, how is the book set up? And I guess what what's an overview of the subject matter that you cover? Because the, the title is we should probably not bury this lead too much more. Agave spirits, the past, present, and future of mezcal. So I assume there's some chronology to it, um, but I don't want to assume too too much else um, without hearing like how how you decided to structure it and the story that you're trying to tell. Well, we felt that uh, we could really dive into the past of. Uh, agave use and cultivation and either and even spiritual practices uh, using pulque and and mezcal um, in a way that hadn't really been done in a narrative in the English language so much uh, because we had longtime friends in some of the communities that still had those traditional practices and so the when when we say the past, we're really talking about a living past, uh, the verb, not the uh, past tense of the verb, but the continuing tense of the verb uh, of people working with agave that know the plan intimately. So we, we really lay out the diversity of uh, agaves that make spirits as well as other products. Uh, pulque is a fermented drink that has nothing to do with the process of making mezcal, even though uh, some uh, first-time visitors to Mexico assume that, pul uh, that mezcal is just distilled pulque, and so we clear up minor confusions like that, or that agaves or mezcals are cacti. And, and yet we know that most readers and drinkers are much more sophisticated in their knowledge of where their spirits come from. So we try to weave a pretty rich story about those things. And, and we go into both the uh, history of consuming agaves as food, because it was very, very important to protecting people from diabetes and other diseases that um, indigenous populations are vulnerable to. But we also talk about uh, its sacramental use, that just like peyote or, for that matter, wine in the uh, uh, Christian church, small amounts of something precious had metaphorical and spiritual significance uh, to people who came together to partake in it. And uh, the prehistory of uh, agave domestication and distillation has recently been reworked in some wonderful ways that we can touch on later. Then we move into the the present day to remind people that there's more agave species that are used for mezcal and other distilled spirits than what we can find in any other kind of spirits. Uh, rum, sake, uh, gin, whiskey, uh, uh, rye, I can keep on naming other spirits, but there's not only more species, 50 to 60, but also more varieties of those species, like different varieties of corn for making uh, corn mash or bootleg hush, uh, uh, hooch in Kentucky and the Carolinas. 
and and then we talk about this really unexplored um, field within uh, the evolution of spirits that because they were doing open fermentation in very rich tropical and subtropical environments, their fermentation vats had a greater diversity of yeast and beneficial bacteria than any other spirit we know. And we're not just doing wow compilations of numbers uh, to say we have more species of plants and they're worked on by more species of yeast and bacteria than in any other spirit. So we call this biodiversity in a bottle. But we're saying, what does it mean that all those yeasts and bacteria are pulling out different molecules from the, uh, from the ferment and bringing up those flavors and fragrances in a way that they even pass on through the still into what we have in a distillate that we drink? And to me, that's an amazing thing. Uh, agaves are incredibly uh, rich in terms of their uh, witch's brew of biochemistry. There's all kinds of chemicals to protect the plant from heat and drought and from insects and diseases that uh, also add to the flavor and fragrances. But uh, you need bacteria and yeast to pull those out of the must and bring them into what is then distilled and ends up in the bottle. So that diversity of beneficial microbes is essential to the deep, complex, almost dreamy flavors of artisanal mezcals in a way that we get in cognacs and some aged wines, but I think in ways it's even of a different level of um, dimensionality than what we see in any other spirit or in any other uh, ferment like wine. I, again, I'm just, I'm thinking, I'm listening to you as if I'm one of these members of our like agave enthusiast cohort from our listeners. And I, I, I can just hear them saying, yes, yes, you're saying it so perfectly. This is exactly why we love agave spirits. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the open fermentation aspect is is certainly one of the more intriguing production points uh, with artisanal agave spirits that is just, I mean, you know, when you think about terroir being the confluence of people, tools, and practices, I mean, the decision to open ferment in, you know, in, in some cases like these um, these vats that are made from, you know, dried animal hides, for example, like there's just so much complexity going into that that it's not replicable. And and so I, I think of agave spirits as being like for, for spirits enthusiasts like me, it's easy to start thinking about those quote unquote, dreamy flavors, thinking about that biodiversity in a bottle. And all I want to do is go and use all my extra funds to grab up this stuff so that I have the coolest collection of agave spirits in the world. And all my friends can, you know, taste these incredible flavors that they won't be able to find anywhere else. And yet I think that very American, very privileged thought pattern sort of crushes some of the stuff that you were talking about earlier with the sacred aspects 
of these plants. So I wonder if you might just give us a little bit more info on some of the, I guess, the, the ritual or the sacred aspects of, of how they've been used in Mexico and maybe just comment whether you agree or disagree or maybe want to modify what I'm saying in, in that little monologue I just gave you. Well, well, first of all, you're, you're hinting at the larger part of the story and the third part of the trajectory. What's the impact of globalization and in some cases industrialization and other, in other cases just remarkable, astounding innovation to maintain traditions? What's the impact of this global demand for mezcal and tequila on the plants themselves and on the distillers and on the uh, agriculturalists who used to grow 12 to 20 different kinds of agave in one field and now are asked for the one that's uh, garnering the highest prices. So to some extent, most people sitting down on a bar school stool aren't going there uh, to be edified about biodiversity. What we wanted to do is bring home both the amazing uniqueness of mezcals and other agave spirits. I mean, I'm not excluding some tequilas. Uh, 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 we love some tequilas as much as we love mezcals. We, we uh, just think that the tequila industry is sort of like the prodigal son that's gone a little bit off course that we hope will come back into the family. So the, the point is that we're, we're trying to maintain our love and enthusiasm uh, for great spirits that can hopefully lead to a healthier industry with no regrets or guilt when we sit down to drink with our friends. But we had to admit there's really dawning challenges at the level of the distiller who is trying to find enough agave plants and firewood to keep his business going in terms of the bottlers and uh, distributors in Mexico who are leveled with two kinds of taxes from the Mexican government that account for over half of the total cost of any bottle of tequila or mezcal that we purchase in Mexico. And uh, how the global market also creates incredible disparities between what a farm worker and a bartender make for their living and what, excuse my uh, slang, but a fat cat in London, Paris, New York, or LA uh, might get uh, for just moving the product around that might be a thousand times more per day than what uh, the bartender who's on the front line with the customers or the, the himador who's on the front line pulling the plants out of the ground, cutting 800 plants a day, what they make as a living. And the, the risks that both of those professions have relative to the stability that someone that's purely in moving products around the globe has financially. So it's not that the whole book is seated with dark messages of horrifying things that are happening in the industry. We're not investigative reporters. We're people who love mezcal and tequila that want to see it done right so that we can all feel good about what we're drinking. And I think that may be the difference from how some of these issues are presented by uh, uh, journalists in magazines or newspapers. Um, 
we deeply love the people who are involved from the the plant to the uh, the mixed drink and we want to see them survive and that's our main goal i do think that it's easy to get lured into that doom and gloom mindset, especially the more you learn about the commercial side of things, which is very complicated. And indeed, what you just described was a writhing complex system with multiple levels of description, not unlike the complex system of the yeasts and beneficial bacteria and substrates that create potential for these products in the first place. So I think one of the, I, I think that's sort of the, 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 almost the, the yin and yang of the agave spirits world is that it's so interesting and unique, but that complexity comes with some serious costs. And I, I'm, I'm just so glad that, that you're here to kind of, you know, work, work at that knot and, and just kind of reveal some of the threads for us. But well, well, we did want to daylight that, but we wanted to daylight it for a very important reason that all of us are stakeholders in the future of that industry. And by Mexican law, any imbiber of agave spirits, any bartender, any mixologist, farmer or um, or distributor in any country that purchases agave spirits has a place at the table in the decisions being made. And in fact, twice already in the last decade, um, uh, bartenders and distributors from the U.S. and Europe have joined with their Mexican colleagues to ask for changes in proposed regulations or more sane interpretation of some of those regulations. So it's a proven fact that armed with more knowledge that drinkers and bartenders can have a positive impact on the future of the agave industry. And, you know, we're not at the table <laughs> in uh, Kentucky bourbon or, or, um, or Napa Valley uh, wine industry decisions like we can be for all the spirits in Mexico. And that's a remarkably um, positive um, uh, opportunity to, to take advantage of. And we're welcomed. We're not considered outside critics. That is very unique within the spirits world. And uh, I do have a listener question that we'll get to in just a moment that might, you know, kind of allow us to to talk about some of the other types of stakeholders at that table. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. And I thought I'd take a moment to talk to you about one of my favorite times of the year, grilling season. To me, there's few things better than popping a couple sirloins or New York strips on the grill, and it's even better when I know that my beef is local, grass-fed, and sustainably raised by independent farmers. That's what Near Country Provisions is all about, and they do a heck of a lot more than just steaks, including wild-caught seafood, pasture-raised pork and chicken, and even add-ons like eggs, cheese, and soup bones. The variety of cuts available is staggering, and I've literally never experienced a subscription service with as many awesome customization options. Each month, I simply set my preferences and a beautifully curated selection of proteins arrives at my door on dry ice. 
If you live in the Mid-Atlantic, head on over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, all one word, at checkout. Becoming a Near Country subscriber is easily one of the biggest quality of life improvements I've made in the last several years, so I hope you'll give Near Country Provisions a shot and let me know what you think. Now, back to the show. But I would be remiss to have a an ecologist sitting here with me and not take a moment to try and appreciate some of the just impressive variety in the agave world. And you know, as you alluded to, there are certain varietals that are drawing, based on any number of factors, more attention, more prestige. Um, they're rarer and, you know, based on supply and demand, rarity demands a higher price point. So uh, we've been seeing more than just Esparin on the shelves at good liquor stores here in the United States. And so for our listeners who might walk into one of these stores or who might go down to Mexico and visit some of these places and see all of these different varietals, how would you personally recommend thinking about that? Because I think it's going to be a little bit more foreign to them than it would if they were to walk into a liquor store and see, uh, you know, red wine, white wine, rosé wine. That's pretty straightforward, but Gave seems more complex. So how, from a botanical perspective, would you try and think about all of these different varietals that are being thrown at us? That's a great question. L- let me... Uh take that in two different ways, because you mentioned Espadine, that's really a domesticated cousin of Tecolana Azul, the blue agave in Jalisco and four other states that is the only variety and species that can be used in tequila. We know that there's about 14 different domesticated agaves, just like corn was domesticated from a wild grass or uh, the kind of large multicolored apples that we eat are domesticated from wild apples, some of which occur all over Europe and and the northern parts of the United States. Um, There's Mexican and uh, indigenous people in the U.S. Southwest domesticated multiple species of agaves. There's only one kind of corn domesticated. There's at least 14 domesticated agave that are out in the fields um, being cultivated. And yet, because of the demand on um, uh, on those 14, there's about 40 other wild species that have always been used locally for uh, pit roasting for food and ferment and, and uh, uh, homemade spirits that have now entered the industry, probably 20 varieties minimum in alone are now getting into the United States. So those are as different from one another, say, as to use some poor analogies, uh, uh, kinds of uh, uh, beans, pinto beans versus carbonzo beans versus uh, runner beans, lima beans. They're, they're different species and varieties of their own flavor 
and adaptations to place that contribute to the terroir. And the great thing that's happened in the mezcal um, industry is that when you look at a label like the one I have here from the Chocolo Biñata of uh, the Partida family in uh, Zapotitlan de Valdio and the Jalisco Colima border, it tells not only what species are in the bottle of the agaves, but what firewoods were used uh, to uh, roast the agave uh, for the barrels that it's uh, aged in, etc. what kind of still was used. And if they've infused it with one of the 140 herbs and spices and animal parts that are in pechugas and and uh, other uh infused or, or uh, uh, spirit additives, um, they list those as well. So you get to know the name of the distiller, the terroir of the place, the firewoods and agaves that are, are utilized as part of that great biodiversity, whether it's bat friendly, whether they're setting aside 5% of the field of, so that the plants will flower for the bats that pollinate them. And it also tells a little bit about the family and the indigenous culture from which uh, it was derived. So there's, it's more than transparency. We're finally getting the story, the backstory that was always hidden from us before. And I think you can argue whether more information makes drinking more enjoyable. Um, I would argue that because it, it slows you down and makes you pay attention to things that you might otherwise miss. But sooner or later, like a good Samanier, you develop a taste and a memory for those distinctions. Yeah, interesting. I, I, I agree with you when it comes to developing that taste and that memory. And I think also, as you just said, that, that the more transparency we have on labels, the easier that's going to be. So... Do you take any sort of case studies of, obviously you, you can't cover all of these wild varietals and all of the, you know, and all of the domesticated varietals in the book, but do, do you have some of the more common or more unique examples where you do kind of dive in a little bit deeper and take a, a core sample of, of that biodiversity for the, and kind of explain it to people? Yeah. Let's just highlight some differences that I think are so interesting to me. The species uh, agave angustifolia that tequila was domesticated from goes from just about 50 miles south of where I'm sitting right now on the U.S.-Mexico border in something that has its own denomination of origin, Bacanora, which is the northernmost uh, uh, domesticated agave in Mexico, all the way into Guatemala. So Espadine-like agaves are not only in Oaxaca and part of Chiapas, but uh, they, they and some close relatives can be found into Guatemala and Central America. But even when you, um, if you had a flight of a, a Northern Sonoran Bacanora, one on the Chihuahua or Sinaloan border, a tequila from the five different states where the denomination of origin covers uh, legal production, and then the Espadines in Oaxaca, you would say those are as different as Cocker Spaniels are from German Shepherds are 
from Chihuahuan puppies, and they're all in the same species. They really have distinctive terroir. We know that mm. uh, agaves are not really just a plant. They're what we call a holobiont. They have all these bacteria and, and fungi some of them, what we call endophytes, that actually grow in the cells of the plant that are pulling out all these great flavors from the soil. So they're sort of a classic example of the concept of terroir. But so the genetics alone of this one species, Aspidine, Tequila, and, and Bacanora, three different denominations of origin, really is just a tip of the iceberg of that diversity. There's other things like Papalometal, uh, there's the same species of what's called Tobala in another area. And some people know both of the names and understand that it's the same variety or, and species. But everyone will say that how it's processed in Oaxaca in different regions is very different from in Puebla. So add the genetic complexity that I've just sort of uh, given you a sketch of with that extraordinary heterogeneity of habitats from uh, 5,000 meters in the Sierra Madre Occidental down to the seacoast where Raecia, the, the wonderful Nayarit and Oaxacan um, uh, denomination of origin occurs, that again has this smoky kind of dreamy flavor in one area and a very crisp, uh, warm, bright, uh, taste like a Blanco in another region. So under the denomination of origin for Ryacea, there's really an upland Ryacea and a coastal Ryacea that are completely different from one another because of the terroir and to some extent or eco that are produced in those two landscapes. Well, I love the way that you just laid that out for us. I, th I think geography is uh, a great way to approach perhaps digging in bottle by bottle, pour by pour. And I think really that's going to be the only way that, that a enthusiastic consumer will be able to build up that kind of mental repertoire that you were describing to kind of get a sense of how, you know, the upland versus the seaside, uh, Rysia, as, as you just said, for example. So uh, great advice and, and obviously just incredibly eloquently put. Um, before we get down to... Well, let me some just say one more thing about that to give a simple analogy. There's a hard cider boom going on in the United States that has that same issue. There's 800 varieties of apples in the United States and, and sometimes they're put in blends. And the easiest thing to do uh, to sort of begin to sense the differences is focus on the ones produced in one state that may share the same terroir in terms of the landscape, but you can taste the difference in the apple varieties. So we have an appendix in the back that lists the uh, commercial varieties produced or that are used to produce tequila, mezcal, bacanora, raiasia, or 100% agave spirits in 14 different states to produce the bulk of all the uh, agave distillates in Mexico. And, and rather than getting uh, confounded and confused by synonyms and the same name being used for different plants in different places, you can narrow down on what that that particular name is used for in Durango or in 
in uh, Oaxaca or in uh, Guanajuato. And so it, you begin to parse it out just like when you're learning any sport or, or reading a long book with a lot of characters, you, you have something to hang your memory on, like a little hanger. Mm, that's such a useful tool. And I'm so glad that you've included that in the book because, you know, one, one thing about a great story is that, uh, you know, you, you can sort of internalize it and be done with it, but it, it seems like that it seems like you're putting together a, a book that will be useful as a reference as well, which I always love. I love it when books do seek to do more than one thing in, in the spirits and cocktail world. Um, I do have one question from our discord community that I want to get in here. Uh, it's from Mickey G and this is kind of getting back to uh, the present and future of what the agave spirits world looks like. Uh, Mickey G says, I'd love to hear about the impact on local economies that the explosive popularity of agave spirits has caused. Are these places, uh, and I'm guessing he's referencing the places where the producers are actually, you know, growing and, and making these spirits, are these places seeing the profits or are the major conglomerates and distributors giving the producers the shaft? And then, you know, I, I sort of a writer question on that. We don't want to speak badly about, you know, any particular entity, but perhaps is there any way to as a consumer, know if the bottle or the pour that you're about to purchase is actually doing good for the person who made it? Those are great questions. So thank you, Mickey G, for bringing up those ethical concerns because we don't want uh, them to rain on our, our uh, parade. Um, and, and I should say that the mezcal boom has changed some communities dramatically since I first met Ron Cooper, who did uh, uh, the one village batches of mezcals uh, over 20 years ago. In some villages, it had seven different palenques or, or distilleries 20 years ago. Um, by 2000, or 30 years ago, by 2000, they might have gotten up to 10 to 12. And now there might be 24 different distilleries in that community. On the surface, you could say, oh, great, more jobs and more income for local people, because in in the area that I'm speaking of, and I don't want to uh, draw negative attention or, or uh, preferential attention, I'm not going to mention the village name, but uh, an old distilling family told me, some of our best workers were bought off to have their own stills as a master distiller with outside money that owned 51% of the distillery, but they rose from being our assistants to uh, the head distiller at some of these places. So we couldn't, we could be sad that, that we lost them from our operation, but we were happy that they gained better employment. But after a point, they're competing for so many of the same agaves that the farmers around them are growing and for the firewood that a place that sustainably uh, could produce wood in a semi-arid subtropical climate for decades has all of a sudden seen uh, people having to go 50 kilometers, what's that, 35 miles to get enough wood for all the 
uh, distilleries in one village and with climate change, the trees are growing more slowly. So there, there's uh, disruptions in the capacity of the community to produce mezcal sustainably and there's clearly winners and losers. Some people end up unemployed, the, uh, the distilleries fail for lack of materia prima, you know, the, the core materials that they need to keep on moving ahead and other people with more access to resources gain more and there's so more disparities. Slow Food and um, many other organizations are sponsoring villages to do reforestation of both the firewood species and the agaves. And those stories are on the internet and covered by the best uh, bloggers uh, in the mezcal world. And they're really heartening to see that some villages are asking for help from conservation groups and sustainable ag groups to get on the right track again so that their children and grandchildren may be able to do the same great liquid art that they do. Yeah, I. it's nice to have your three decades plus of perspective on that as you were describing, you know, what was just a handful of distilleries turning into a dozen distilleries turning into in an even shorter period of time, double that two dozen distilleries. I think it's easy for people to imagine at with that story how this would very rapidly turn into a tragedy of the commons and you know the firewood is something that i wrote down very early on in this conversation and we've come back this is the third time we're mentioning the firewood uh and it's it's just one aspect of the agave making process that just doesn't come up so often, perhaps because a lot of the larger operations obviously have, you know, different ways of, of heating the, um, the, the quote unquote mash um, to create the distillate or to run their stills. But, you know, the fact of the matter is that so many of these authentic, you know, traditional mezcal producers do use direct fire for their stills and it's yeah it, it is it's mind-blowing to me that the wood is, is is a real issue so again i will i'll ask is there any way besides diving down some deep internet rabbit holes and you know referencing forums and and finding people who are certainly more knowledgeable than i am are there any ways to walk up to a bottle of agave spirits or to see a pour on a menu and you know, have a conversation with a bartender about whether or not that's an ethically sourced bottle? Yes. And of course, labeling is, is to some extent imperfect in and of itself. It can't tell the whole story. We don't expect that to do with any other product we consume, but it's a, it's a guide. It's a signpost. And so the artisanal, the artisanal mezcals in the ancestral tequilas, which are kind of like Coke classics. They've gone back from older practices and sourcing um, are the quickest way to get on the right track with those. And in the um, watch out for them category is the mixto tequilas that really have a lot of high fructose corn syrup in them and that are still in most of the, the um, 
marguerite is consumed in the United States. They're, they're uh, added artificial color and artificial flavor to something that's only uh, 51% agave by volume. I want to say that the, the most dangerous thing, going back to Mickey G's question, <clears throat> is that now things are being called mezcal. That word means uh, metal, uh, agave or century plant, plus pit roasted, pit baked or pit steamed, uh, tali. And, um, and instead of trimming mature agaves down into heads that look like pineapple and roasting them in pits or ovens uh, to bake them for uh, hours and hours. The most dangerous trend in the industry, both with tequila and espadine, is to use diffusers and autoclaves. The plants are not even trimmed. The entire immature plant is uh, picked up in a backhoe and then the sugars blasted out of them. So you could say it really isn't a mezcal by the historic definition of what a mezcal is. It's not roasted. And it was never trimmed to look like all those uh, beautiful pineapples we see in all the romantic pictures with the jimadores. It's taking a shortcut that has also meant that we're harvesting more and more immature agaves and then adding more uh, artificial colors and flavors to give them the appearance of an aged uh, mezcal or tequila. And that's creating an incredible imbalance in the number of agave propagules, or we call them seeds, but they're really vegetative propagules, available to the industry. So for four or five years, there'll be an incredible shortage of them, and the price will go up to a dollar a single plant. And then people will overplan, including cartels in Sinaloa, and flood the market, and it'll drop down to 50 cents a plant. Um, and they're being harvested in as little as five years, where even in 1985, most tequila gavis were being harvested in nine to 12 years. So we're pushing them toward being an annual plant more and more, and they're immature, and they just don't have the flavors and fragrances that any of your uh, dedicated listeners expect out of an agave spirit or any spirits that they enjoy. So there's some real dangers in the industry that aren't just in the tequila world anymore. We see them in the uh, big factory towns uh, in Oaxaca, too. Well, I think it's very helpful that you provided the the label claim for us to look out for, artisanal for mezcal and ancestral for tequila. And also, you know, occasionally on a label, you will see label claims like, you know, made using a tahona, you know, uh, uh, roasted in a horno. Right. The, you know, these these are, you know, production claims that if, if they're true on the label, then, you know, that, that certainly lends some authority to the juice that's in the bottle. And yeah, I just want to echo, echo your sentiment on the, the autoclave diffuser process being, you know, it's not, it's not just a shortcut, it's an extractive shortcut. And I, I, I'm sure that you more than most as uh, an ethnobotanist are, you know, big on regeneration as opposed to pure extraction. So I'm sure, I'm sure that, uh, I'm sure that you back me up on that. But uh, as we wind down 
to the end of our conversation here. I just want to open the floor to you. Um, what haven't we discussed about the book that you want to make sure our listeners know so that when it drops, uh, they've already got their copy pre-ordered and are excited to dig in? Well, these are short vignettes that you can read. Uh, each chapter is a uh, montage of about six or seven reports from a from a field out there with archaeologists and with um, agave chemists and and the distillers themselves. And so you even the people who haven't been able to travel to Mexico because of COVID or other family issues get a sense of what it's like on the ground. And I think some people will be surprised that so many women are now leaders in the industry, particularly in Oaxaca, just remarkably um, ethical, adventurous, and well-educated women doing remarkable innovations too numerous to name that more and more um, uh, distilleries are doing reforestation efforts is something that consumers can support and many of of the companies will now put that in their promotional information on the label just like some can now say that they're certified that friendly so all of that's going in the right way again i think for me we need to remember that agaves were eaten fermented and through prohibition distilled in the southern United States. And there's an incredibly hot but fascinating debate about whether um, agave distillate should be produced in California or in Satol as well, in Texas, or whether it, uh, we should just appreciate what Mexico has and not see it internationalized. And I, I'll uh, lead the um, judgment to your listeners, but let's be aware that that debate is raging. That is excellent. Yeah, I uh, I have a feeling that there's probably more more sympathetic ears on this end than than less sympathetic to that debate. Um, especially our friends uh, Chava and Lou over at the Agave Road Trip podcast certainly want to see some American agaves, um, but or I should say American grown agaves. But um, but yeah, uh, I guess the last question I have on the book front is when when does it drop? How do people pick up their copy? Uh, is there any particular venue that, that you'd recommend that folks go to buy the book so that it benefits uh, you and your co-author the most? Well, thank you. The book did just drop this last week. Uh, so it's not only at Amazon, but it's in local bookstores ah, now. I've happened to see it three times. I'm doing... Uh, uh, heading out to the Marfa Agave Festival and then Albuquerque and Santa Fe for readings in the next month that you can uh, track on my website or on the Mescal Mankind Mutualism website. But I, I would also say that uh, we'd love people who read it to make comments on Amazon or Goodreads uh, as impartial readers of what you found in it that you liked and what you thought was wanting because uh, we all benefit from that. There's other great uh, Mescal books out too, Emma Jansen, so we don't want to pretend that we have the last word. We're grateful to all our Mexican colleagues that have been writing about these issues for years and hope that more people understand that there's great science conservation, ethic, ethical distillation all going on 
through Mexican interest in the same topics that we've been discussing. So this is not an American uh, interest alone in any way. We're being led by some great Mexican innovators. And I just want to say that the more engagement we all have with every step in the beverage supply chain, the more it will enrich our, enrich our appreciation for not only the spirits, but the people who bring us our daily drink. Mm. Very well said. Uh, well, we will, of course, have links to the book over on the website as well as your personal website, Gary. Uh, but with that, do you have time for just a couple of very quick lightning round questions? Absolutely. All right. Desert Island question modified just for you. You're stuck on a desert island with no prospect of rescue. As a botanist, what's one type of plant that you would hope to see growing on that island and one type of plant that you would look to seriously avoid? Well, they're probably um, one and the same. I, uh, I, I, it's a toss-up between prickly pear cactus and uh, century plants. Both of them are sort of the bison or the salmon of the plant world in that indigenous cultures have gotten food, medicine, drink, fiber, and spiritual guidance from those plants. And uh, But both are thorny as hell, and I have scars to show it. I have more needle marks <laughs> in my arms than Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones has. So these plants are not without their dangers, but we can say that about um, – everything we passionately love. So um, I, both the plant that I would love and curse on that desert island would be one and the same. It, amazing, amazing. I think there's an episode of Survivor Man where this actually plays out uh, on, on films uh, for us. So uh, next question. You are a fan of heirloom seeds, I read. I am as well. I've got three different variety, uh, varieties of heirloom green tomatoes that are hardening off in the window wells just a few feet behind me, and I'm going to use those for experiments this year on uh, green Bloody Marys. But, um, you know, is in the heirloom seed world, uh, is, is there a favorite that you have recently or perhaps a favorite of all time that you might share with our listeners? Well... I have to say that I worked on the conservation of heirloom seeds for 30 years before uh, being out in the desert on a trip to uh, go to where frankincense was being collected in Oman. And on the way back from uh, harvesting frankincense in the desert, uh, my uh, guide took me by a farmer's market World Heritage Site in Oman, and showed me that there was a Nabhan heirloom date. And I had never thought that my own family would have an heirloom named for it. And so I was in shock, and I've gotten interested in um, dates, pomegranates, and figs from, from the deserts and how they made their way to America. And Arizona has a unique date that we put on the Slow Food Arc of Taste called the Black Sphinx Date, that in Alice Waters' uh, uh, cookbook on fruits, she said, don't eat this, um, don't prepare this date in any way. Put it in cold water for 30 seconds with ice and then eat it immediately. There's no reason to prepare it in any way. It's the best date in the world. And so the Black Sphinx Date, we've now started a, a movement to uh, 
can serve in Arizona with dozens of people involved and if you ever run across it, snap it up. Hmm. Will do. Will do. Uh, and then finally here, uh, we always love a good book recommendation. So for those listeners who might be curious to learn more either about agave or the other things that you're passionate about, ethnobotany, um, are there any books that they might pick up that would be significant guideposts on, on their journey to learning more about, you know, the amazing plants that we've been talking about today? Well, you know, I couldn't have done the, uh, chapters on fermentation without having a great friendship with Sandor Katz, the art of fermentation, the fermentation journey uh, that opened many uh, people to fermenting their own beverages. Um, and I would also say that uh, Harold McGee's nosedive about um, the science of fragrances. I think all of us have a lot more capacity to absorb nerdy, geeky science than people did even 20 years ago in Harold McGee's nosedive helps us learn about the fragrances that we love in different wines and spirits in a way that I could have never imagined before. So I, I love those two books. And I have to say that um, my Mexican uh, colleagues like Patricia uh, Colunga Garcia Marin and Ana Valenzuela write articles in and books both in English and Spanish about their own journeys with Mescal that I think are unparalleled in their quality. Emma Jensen's uh, Mescal book is, is one that I do love in the English language, and I think there will be more to come. Uh, David and I have no monopol monopoly on this topic, and we're delighted to learn something new from our, our many colleagues, uh, both in Latin America and in the U.S. Well, Gary, this has been a huge treat for me, and uh, I, I have a, a whole page just filled with notes here from our conversation, and I'm just so excited to <laughs> dig into your book and uh, and just keep learning because that's the beauty of agave spirits. There's always more to learn, and just when you think you've got something pinned down, somebody like my friend Chava will show up with an unmarked bottle of something very bizarre that makes you question everything that you think you knew. So uh, with that, I will thank you for spending this hour with me and thank you for putting together this wonderful book that's gonna be a tremendous resource for so many of our listeners. And finally, for being my guest here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. And I'm so glad that you didn't mind me drinking uh, mezcal for my sore throat during the, the talk. It was for its medicinal value. And uh, I hope I didn't start slurring any words, but thank you so much for this opportunity. Your questions were great, as were the questions from your, your uh, avid listeners. So grateful to all of you. Cheers, provecho. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts 
and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, Agave Insights courtesy of Gary Nabhan, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2023.